Mark chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 24. When you have that, if you would, stand with me in reverence to God's word this morning. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. The Bible says, From there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now this woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the little children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. You may be seated. A number of weeks ago, when our curriculum team was beginning to work on the lesson for today, the one that you'll have when we finish up this morning, and they, they came to this text, and as they have been doing on a weekly basis, they asked me, could you give us an idea about this passage? Could you, could you give us kind of what the, the overall scope of your sermon is going to be when we come to this text on this Sunday. And I was texting with them, and I immediately text back, and I said, why don't you give me a little while? I said, this sermon is maybe a little harder than some of the others. Because when we look at this particular passage, we have to, we have to think we have to consider what we know about Jesus' character and if that character is different after we read Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. Did we get Jesus wrong? Is he, is he not nearly as nice as we thought? Is he, is he not nearly as kind as we thought? Because that's often the label, that's often the understanding that we put on Jesus. We look at him and his goodness and his kindness. We see the, the mercy that he gives to people. We see the, the grace that he shows to people that are seemingly undeserving. We see that he forgives sin and he heals those who are sick and hurting. He casts out demons. And yet we come to Mark chapter 7 and... Did we misunderstand some things? Because when I read this text, at least the first time through, I see Jesus call this woman and everyone like her a dog. That seems to be out of character for Christ. And yet I believe this text for us reveals something very powerful about our Savior. It reveals to us something amazing about His character and His determination when it comes to the mission and ministry that the Father has set out before Him. So at first glance, it is kind of hard 
to read all of these good things and see all of these good things about Jesus and then come to this passage and he be what we could mistake for cruel, for harsh. So as we walk through this text, I want us to to see the amazing character of our Savior. I want us to see the wonderful nature of Christ and who He is and what He has done for us. See, this woman has a simple desire. But as the entire Bible is not about the people that we read and nor are they character studies, but the entire Scriptures point us to Christ, so does this text. Even in a Gentile Syrophoenician woman who Jesus seemingly calls a dog, we have revealed for us the great character of our Savior. So let's look as we begin in verse 24. We see in this verse that Christ is not hidden. Part of his amazing character is the fact that he is not hidden. And from there, he has been, if you'll remember back, he has been in this discussion with the religious leaders in the verses preceding this, the ones that we looked at last week. He is in this discussion with them about what is clean and what is unclean. And now we come to this passage, and he has now left that region where he is dealing with the Jewish religious leaders, and he has come into this Gentile area known as Tyre and Sidon. And he is there and he goes into this house and the goal seems to be what the goal has been now for multiple verses. This desire for rest. If we go all the way back to when he sends out his disciples, they come back and there is this this desire for them to rest, to get away from the work of the ministry. But now this has seemingly become impossible for Jesus because he goes into this house and he desires, he, he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Now remember, this is not uncommon when Jesus is wandering around the Jewish countryside. People had heard of him. He had gained a lot of popularity. He had gained a lot of notoriety. People wanted something from Jesus. They, they wanted that he would heal them. They wanted that he would cast out demons. They wanted that he would do a miracle. They wanted to see that. And so it was not uncommon then that people would pursue him and make every attempt to, to find him and to witness his miracles, to witness his healings, to, to be fed by him when they were hungry. But his fame has grown to the extent to where even in this Gentile region where these people here were not Jewish, they had no relationship with God, their their religious persuasion was that of of paganism. They had multiple gods that they worshipped, multiple false gods that they worshipped. And yet when Jesus enters into this region... and he goes into this house where he should have been able to remain anonymous... He can't be hidden. It seems as if it's gotten to the point where there's nowhere he can go and be hidden. There's nowhere he can go that his message will not pierce the darkness of the places he arrives at. 
Christ is not hidden. You know, it may seem that in our culture and in 2015, it is becoming increasingly easy for Christ to be hidden. It may seem as if that there are plenty of places that you can go and not find Christ, that you can go and Him be hidden from view and no longer visible, where, where people have intentionally tried to put down the faith and, and remove it from society and civilization and, and quiet Christians and silence the church, but Christ is not hidden. Everywhere in the world right now, he's at work. In some places, it's very visible. It's easy to see, like we would see in our own uh, church this morning and us gathered here for the purpose of worship. But at the same time, there are very dark places in the world where there seems to be no witness of Christ. There seems to be uh, nowhere in that place where his message is prevalent, and yet he is at work. He is moving We're promised when we go to the end of the Bible and we see the culmination of all things. We are promised that there will be people there from every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue. There will be people there from all over the world. Why? Because Christ is not hidden. Every effort in the last 2,000 years to stop Christianity, to stop the flow of the gospel and the message of Christ has failed. There may have been times when it seemed as if there was going to be success for those who tried to stop the message of Christ. But the reality is that they have failed each and every time because Christ is not hidden. Here, even in this pagan area where there was no real dedication to God, where there were no people who worshipped in the temple and followed the law. He goes to this place and he cannot be hidden. Quietly, he sneaks into this house and yet they find out and they show up. Isn't it good to know that the message that we have can't be hidden? It's amazing to me the number of Christians who try to hide the message. Now that's odd. It should be odd to you. It should strike you strange if you have done that or know someone who does that. But think about the number of Christians who want to take their faith and take the message of Christ and and hide it. They want to hide it away from the world. They want that to be a a personal thing. We've come to the point in our society where our religious beliefs are supposed to be personal, but they're never supposed to be public. But the reality is for the Christian, that simply cannot be because Christ cannot be hidden. If we do not cry out, trust me, nature around us will. The rocks will begin to cry out his message because it will not be hidden. It should break our hearts that so many Christians would attempt that endeavor, would attempt to silence the message of Christ in their own life. This woman who we're about to encounter, she is drawn to Christ. 
because he cannot be hidden. We should rejoice in that. No matter what happens in the culture in which we live, no matter what world events transpire during our lifetime, no matter how unpopular it becomes to be a Christian or if Christianity becomes the minor religion in the world, Christ will not be hidden. His message will go forward. He will continue to pierce the darkness and he will continue to draw people unto himself. And that's exactly what we see as we move into verse 25. Not only is it true that Christ is not hidden, but it's also true that Christ draws unto himself unlikely followers. We see this in verses 25 and 26. Christ draws in unlikely followers. See, because he is not hidden, because he can't hide himself, he can't even get away from people now, it seems. Anytime he he goes up even onto the mountain to pray, his disciples become distressed and are in need of him. He, He just simply cannot be hidden, and this causes him to draw unto himself unlikely people. See, for the most part, as we've been traveling through Mark's gospel together, we have seen him have multiple encounters with people of the Jewish faith People who were like him. People who were temple people. People who, who sought to follow after the law. These people had expectations of a long-awaited Messiah. They were, they were thinking about it. They were hoping for it. In the context in which Jesus lived, there was this desire among the people to be saved from their captives. If we trace the, the history of the Jewish people, they fall from one captivity to the next. Israel had fallen and then regained its independence and fallen again. They had fought the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and now the Romans. It wouldn't be long after this was written that Rome would come and destroy the temple in 70 AD. And it wouldn't be until the 1940s that the Jewish people had their own country again. And so in the time that Jesus lived, there was this this desire, this firm expectation that a, a Messiah was going to come, a deliverer was going to come, someone was going to come and set up the throne of King David and remove everyone from the land that should not be there, remove their captors, remove the ones who had enslaved them, and they would have freedom. But he's not among those people in this text. He is not among people who have a firm expectation that God is going to send them a Messiah. As a matter of fact, these pagans had no expectation of the Jewish people whatsoever. These people are comfortable with their false idol worship. They're they're comfortable in rejecting and denying God. They're comfortable. They have no knowledge of God. They have no desire to follow after Him. To them, He is one God among many in their region. But Jesus attracts unlikely followers. See, oddly enough, many of these religious leaders, or some of these religious leaders who reject Jesus initially, eventually have their eyes open and see who he is. He calls these fishermen, these low-educated people, these people with no standing in society, he calls them and they become his disciples. 
He goes to the sinners and the tax collectors. And he calls them and invites them in. He, he calls them and he says, I'm going to go to your house today. I'm going to eat at your table. I'm going to have fellowship with you. This time is no different. This woman is a Gentile, a pagan. She's part of the people that were ultimately the enemies of God. She was part of the people that the Jewish people would have treated like dogs. A place where if you went into their area, into their villages, into their society, when you left you were unclean and needed to be cleansed because you had been among such vile people. But she comes to Jesus anyway. She's drawn to Christ. Though she is vile, though she is wicked, though she is a dog, though she is an outcast, though she is of no importance, she comes to Christ. He draws her in. It would serve you and I well to understand that Jesus draws in unlikely followers. Unfortunately, I think in the church there is still this mindset that it's easy to dismiss people that, that are far away from God. On Sunday night, last Sunday night, we had the opportunity, some of us, to go and worship with many other churches in our community, and it was fantastic. It was just a wonderful time of, of worship with others in our community. And they had a testimony from one of the pastors in our association. And if you think I dress down on Sunday mornings, you need to meet him. Because he's the pastor of the biker church in Hickory. I'm sure the dude's got tattoos. He's got an awesome goatee. He was wearing a t-shirt. I was wearing a jacket. Like a suit jacket, not like a raining jacket, but a suit jacket. That's a big step for me. And he talked about how God is moving in his church in saving a group of people that most Southern Baptists would have nothing to do with. Friends, we need to realize that we've gotten to a point in the history of the church in the United States of America where we can no longer be picky about who we minister to. Now, I want to promise you there was never a point where that was okay. But in generations gone past, the church was comfortable going and ministering only to people who looked like them, who had similar money to they did, uh, had similar education to what they have, who looked like them, who spoke the same language to them. That was the only people that most Baptists were concerned about reaching. Well, guess what? It didn't work. It didn't work. Most of the people who look like you and act like you have heard the gospel time in and time out. And you know what they have done? Most of them, they have rejected the gospel. But yet yesterday, 2,000 people, more than 2,000 people, died in an earthquake in Nepal, a small country that borders China in Asia. You've maybe never heard of it. You might not be able to find it on a map. But more than 2,000 people died there 
in an instant when an earthquake struck. Do you realize that most of them have never heard the gospel of Christ? Most of the people that died yesterday had never been exposed to the gospel. They had never heard the name of Christ. Your neighbor who looks like you, who talks like you, who likes the same sports teams that you do, works at the same job that you do, who's heard the gospel time in and time out and rejected it, is not more deserving of hearing the gospel than those people that died in the poll. They're not more deserving of hearing the gospel than people in China, than people in Indonesia, than people in Iraq and Afghanistan, than people in in sub-Saharan Africa. Those people are not less deserving of the gospel. And so we need to realize that God is calling unlikely people. And the reason that churches sit empty in the United States is not because God has somehow lost his power, but because these people have heard the gospel and rejected it. We're not promised a second opportunity. There's there's no guarantee to that. When 2,000 people can die in an instant and have never heard. God is calling unlikely people. The church in Nepal is growing. The church in the Middle East is growing. The church in Africa is growing. The church in China is exploding. Go ask Fess and Barbara about it. They have a heart for China. They go there every year. And there are more Christians now in China than in the United States. Why? Because there's a hunger and a desire to hear the gospel and receive the gospel. And God is calling unlikely people. He is calling Muslims. He is calling Buddhists. He is calling Hindus. He is calling communists in China. He is calling godless pagan atheists to come to faith in him. Because that's what he does. He calls unlikely people. And so if we want to be about the work of the ministry, the work that God has for us, it's going to be about ministering to unlikely people. The person that you look at every day and you say, you know what, they'll never be anything. They will never follow Christ. They are no good. They've never done anything good in their life. Guess what? That is the type of person that needs to hear the gospel because they are hungry for something. Most people in our society have this cultural Christianity. They got baptized when they were five and they believe that's enough to save them. And it's not. They've never stepped foot back in a church, but they expect on the day they die, a pastor will stand before their coffin and preach them into heaven, and that will not work. But God, all around us, is calling unlikely people. He's calling bikers in Hickory. We heard how Spanish-speaking people from dozens of countries were impacted by the work of our association over at a trailer park on Springs Road. Where they lived at, they were culturally Catholic. They didn't have saving faith in Christ. They didn't know Him. They, they went, some of them, to church, and they stood up and sat down when they were supposed to and went through the rituals. But here in Hickory on Springs Road in a trailer park, they have heard the good news of the gospel of Christ. If we will ever wrap our mind around the fact that Christ 
draws to himself unlikely people, it will change our perspective on the work that God has called us to do. I hear sometimes the excuse, you probably don't want to say it to me, I would be very unhappy, but I hear the excuse about missions. You know, why don't y'all go do mission work? People here need to hear. People here need, need to hear the gospel. That's true. And oddly enough, we're coming to a point where second and third generation uh, kids out of church have never heard the name of Jesus and they live in Eichert. Their parents didn't go to church. Their grandparents didn't go to church. They had no exposure. But friends, we've got people all around the world who have never heard. They don't have the Bible in their language. They have no contact with Jesus. And if you believe the Bible, it tells us that people that do not hear have no hope. They have no hope. So don't say we need to do more stuff here and not do anything there. That's foolishness. God has called us here to minister every single day to the people around us. And he's given us the amazing resources to travel the world and fulfill the Great Commission. Let me promise you that your existence as a Christian will change if you can understand in your mind that God is calling unlikely people. And he started with the most unlikely of all, you. You were a sinner, far from God, undeserving of his grace, deserving of his punishment and wrath, and he called you. If he can call you, then there's no one who is too far from his grace. He's not hidden. He draws in unlikely followers. Look at verse 27. Christ does not lose focus of his mission He's out there, he's, he's preaching, he can't be hidden from anyone. It's, it's drawing people to himself, it's drawing religious people, it's drawing tax collectors and fishermen and Syrophoenician women. And he never loses focus of his mission. Verse 27, he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Was he calling this woman a dog? I don't see how you get around that. I think you can decide on different levels of how harsh he might have been being if he was being just nasty to the lady. That doesn't seem to be characteristic of what we know about Christ everywhere else in the Gospels. But when he says dogs, he's talking about her. He's talking about the Gentiles. He's not sugarcoating this. Why would he say that? Why would he say something that we would take to be so offensive? It's not something we would say. Why why did Jesus say it? Because he has a mission. And he's focused on that mission. Who did he come to? Who did Jesus come to witness to and minister to and serve? He came as the Jewish Messiah. And now, 2,000 years later, I think a lot of people in the church wouldn't even know that Jesus was Jewish. I've always thought it was amazing in the 2,000 years of the church how much anti-Semitism there has been. And there continues to be among people today. It's odd. 
Because Jesus was Jewish. He was born Jewish, and he died Jewish. Jesus at no point was ever a Christian. He never put that label on himself. Why would he need to be a Christian? Why would Jesus need to put faith in himself? Jesus was Jewish. As a matter of fact, he was a first century Jew. We need to understand him within the context of being a first century Jew. Some people try to make him a 21st century Jew. Some people try to make him a 21st century Baptist. He wasn't any of those things. Jesus was Jewish. And his mission, being sent from the Father, was to minister and witness and be the Jewish Messiah. Because God had promised from long ago, all the way back, if we go into Genesis to the to the story of Abraham, we see God promise that the nations, that the world, are going to be blessed toward this or through this one family, Abraham's family. Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has Joseph and many sons, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. So he didn't come... In his ministry, in his earthly ministry, he didn't come to minister to Gentiles. That wasn't his job. That wasn't his purpose. Now, he does. We see that. We see him have interaction with Gentiles, and we see him treat them far differently than other Jewish people in his day. But that's not the primary focus of his mission and ministry. And so he tells this woman here, I'm, I'm, I'm ministering to God's children, And I'm not going to begin to take what I'm doing there. I'm not giving up on them yet and giving this food that I'm trying to give them to you, to the Gentiles. Now, we understand that today, interestingly enough, the primary focus of the church is Gentiles. Gentiles from all over the world are a part of this Jewish faith. This thoroughly Jewish faith. Look at the writers of the Bible. Almost all of them are Jewish. We have a thoroughly Jewish faith. And Jesus says, that was my mission. That is my mission. That is my Focus. That's what the Father has sent me to do. I am to minister to the Jewish people. He doesn't lose focus of his mission, and that is such a great example for us. Because I think when we look around us, we see that there are endless possibilities of things that we can do. There are endless good works that we can participate in. There are endless organizations that we can partner ourselves with. Many of these things, most of these things are good. They're good things that we can contribute to. But they're not our mission. When we fail to focus on our mission, we cease to be what God has called us to be. There's so many churches that they have all of this stuff going on. Their calendar is 
full. It's packed out. Things going on all the time. Things for family, things for women, things for men, things for kids, things in the community, things overseas. Things going on all the time. But they have nothing to do with the mission that God has called us on. They have no, no reasoning behind them when it comes to a biblical focus on the mission that God has called us to. Because, see, God has called us to be a church on mission for the kingdom of God. Pure and simple. It reveals itself in many different ways, but if our focus, if our mission is not on helping move forward the kingdom of God, we've missed it. See, Jesus could have easily, now that he's seen this Gentile reception of him, he could have said, you know, I'm going to detour over in here for a while. If I go over in here with these these pagan people, I'm not going to have to deal with these religious leaders anymore. These religious leaders won't even come over here. They don't want to be unclean. They don't want anything to do with this. If I go over and I minister with these Gentiles, I can live it up. Remember, his disciples have, have desire before, hey, let's go back there. These people love you. Let's go back and be a part of that. Peter is pushing him, and Jesus says, no, it's not. I'm going to go here and preach. And so now here, the temptation comes again. You could be loved in this area. People would come and see you. They would come and follow you, and you don't have all the religious baggage of going back to Jerusalem, to going back to Judea and to Galilee. You don't have all the baggage of the religious leaders who are tormenting you constantly. You can go and preach your message freely among these Gentiles. And he says, it's not my mission. It's not my purpose. When we are going to do anything as a church, and when you as a believer are going to decide the things that you're going to be involved in. You must ask yourself, does this keep with our mission? Does this keep with what God has called us to do? Some things may be fun, they may be entertaining, but are they the main thing? Are they the mission that we have been called upon to do? Christ never departed from his mission he remained solely focused on being the Messiah to the Jewish people, even though it led him to the cross. He was undeterred by the distractions and the temptations that came with his ministry. And friends, you and I would do well to be undeterred too. When God's called us to something, we focus on it. We do it. We complete the task. We carry out the mission. And we don't let anything distract us. Well, sometimes that's hard. Sometimes that means we're going to make people angry. Sometimes we're going to have to tell people no. And that is okay. Because that's exactly what Jesus does here. He's tempted to deviate from the mission. But he doesn't do so. Even in what he does, even in what we see in the verses that in this section, 
He's not deterring from his mission. He even wants her to understand that. My mission is for God's people. It doesn't deviate from that. We would do well to do the same. Because, as we see in the last three verses, Christ, is, Christ does not lose focus of his mission, but he does respond to unyielding faith. Look at this. Verse 28, but she answered him. So, so he's given her this, this explanation here. I'm not going to throw this bread to the dog. And so what did, what did she say? But she answered him, yes, Lord. In other words, okay, don't throw the bread out to the dogs. But yet, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. It's a good answer. That's a... It's a real good answer. Now, I firmly believe that Jesus says his statement knowing what her response is going to be because he's already seen this lady's faith. He knows her heart. He knows what's coming. And she says, you're exactly right. You're not going to take the bread off the table for the kids and throw it out to the dogs. But what about the dogs that hang out under the table? My wife and I were joking the other day that we used to have this little brown dog. The dog was dumber than a brick wall. She chased the mailman too many times. One too many times. I love that old dog. That old dog went camping with us. That dog, it was a, it, it was a cocker spaniel mixed with a chocolate lab. And so basically it was a miniature chocolate lab. And it was awesome. But we were lamenting the other day that we never had to sweep the kitchen floor when we had Annie. We had one dog and a lot less children, and we never had to sweep. It was wonderful because Annie took care of the problem. When it was time to eat, Annie stayed under the table until you're done. Never ate her dog food. Never touched it. She wanted what fell off the table because it tasted a lot better. That lady has exactly this in mind. That lady says, okay, if I'm going to be the dog, I don't want to be the dog outside. That's the weight on the bread. Can I be the dog under the table? Can I be the dog that lays there and wait? When the kids start eating, they drop something, and I get it. She says, that would be enough. That would be adequate for me. I don't... I don't have to be outside and you take something from the kids and give it to me. God, if, if I can just get under the table, if I can just be under there, and if something is dropped, can I scoop that up? That will be sufficient to take care of my needs. Verse 29, and he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. I wonder if when they left there and Jesus got to himself at some point, I wonder if that statement made him smile or maybe cry a little bit. Here are his disciples who have seen 
amazing miracles performed. They have seen him feed thousands. They have seen him walking on the water. They have seen him calming multiple storms at this point. And and they struggle with their faith. And yet this lady, in one encounter with Jesus, after being told that no, he was not going to take care of her daughter, that she was a dog... She says, hey, my faith is enough that I'll take the things that fall off the table. Those things are sufficient for me. To to get the crumbs that would fall off the table, the the leftovers. Christ, you feed your children, that's fine. But the, the crumbs that fall off, can I have those? That will be sufficient. Most of us would hear that and be offended. I'm not a dog, I'm leaving. I'm not, I don't have to put up with this. But this lady, because she's been drawn to Christ, has enough insight into who is standing before her to be satisfied with the crumbs that fall off the table. There's a hymn that, I don't remember the exact words, I didn't plan to quote it to go back and look at it, but basically the hymn talks about mercy drops falling. And then the, the, the hymn writer says, but for the showers we plead. You know, when you look at that in light of this, how awesome it would be to be satisfied with just drops, just crumbs. This lady is satisfied with that. That's enough. That's enough to take care of her need. That's enough to fix this. She realizes through, through some insight that Christ has given her that he is, he is sufficient. And if she can just have the crumbs that are falling off the table, he doesn't have to perform these great miracles. He doesn't have to walk on the water for her. He doesn't have to feed 5,000 for her. If she can have the crumbs off his table, that would be satisfactory. And so he, he says, go. It's taken care of. And in verse 30, she went home and found the child lying in the bed and the demon gone. Her faith, through whatever means, is strong enough to accept the crumbs off the table. I wonder if our faith is that strong. I think sometimes you and I are only satisfied with a full meal at the table. I think unless Christ gives us everything, and he does so in a dramatic fashion, we are simply not satisfied with his offerings. They need to be bigger. They need to be greater. We want more. And yet, the people throughout the history of the church who have been satisfied with the crumbs that fall off the table have been those who have been most excited about Christ, who have been most beneficiary to the kingdom, who have done the most, who have carried out the most work for the kingdom, who have accomplished the most for the gospel, those who have been satisfied with the crumbs on the floor. I think about my friend Carlos in El Salvador, and I think about 
going to his house on one of the last days of our trip. He didn't really want to take us. I think from working with Americans before, he had in his mind that we had high expectations and we were uncomfortable anywhere that was not up to our standards. He didn't want us to eat anywhere authentic. He he didn't want us to be anywhere dangerous. He must have had bad experiences with Americans before. That would not be surprising. He said, Carlos, we want to go to your house. I want to go and I want to see where you live. We'd driven past the road several times. He said, I just live down there. Let's go. We want to see everywhere else. We had seen most of the rest of El Salvador and some of the backwoods places we ended up going. I want to see this house. So we pull up out front of his house, and before we get out, he, he says, you know, we need to move in pretty quickly when we get out here. He said, because on the next street down is where the gangs operate. And he says, and this guy that lives right across the street from me, he, the guy was outside working, he had a little shop. He says, they, they, they keep trying to kill him, and they've not been successful. Now, that's the kind of guy going around with me, the guy that you can't successfully shoot. But he said, you know, they were shooting at him last year, the year before. He said, a bullet came through the window of our house. And so we go into his house. It's, you know, a humble home. He lives there with his, his mother. He takes care of her. And, you know, we're sitting there, and it was hot. They offered us a, a Pepsi or, or something, and we just sat around and talked for a while. And when I look at this text and this woman's satisfaction which is the crumbs. I think about places like that that I've been where people in the world don't have anything. And yet they have so much more joy than I do. They have so much more joy in their faith than I do. How is that possible? Because the world tells us that we've got to have all of this stuff. If we don't have this stuff, if we don't have everything around us, if we don't have uh, all the possessions, if we don't have the nicest car, if we don't have the biggest television, uh, then, then we're, not, we're not there. We've not arrived. We can't be happy. Turn on a commercial this afternoon. That's what the commercial is telling you. Buy this or you will simply not be happy. But that's not true. That's simply not true at all. Because here is this woman, and she has offered only the crumbs. She has offered only the things that fall off the table, and her faith is firm enough to say, hey, that's fine. She says, I'm not going to take the food from the children and give it to the dog. She says, that's fine. I will get under the table. I will humble myself to that point and eat the crumbs that fall off when your children are eating. See, our faith is weak. We give up at hardships and trials. We refuse to accept that life is going to be hard. We refuse to accept that sin is pervasive and corrupts completely. We want people to be good. We want ourselves to be good. We want to have Christ and all the comforts of the world at the same time. See, what we need to realize is the greatest gift that we ever receive from God is our faith. 
It's the faith to get under the table and eat the crumbs. We cannot abandon this faith when times get difficult. We cannot abandon this faith when God seems slow to answer or to act in our life. In that moment, we are easily tempted to give up and place our faith somewhere else, but it simply will not work. I'm amazed, as I am every four years, at how it takes people about a minute and a half to place their faith in a politician. One good speech, one pithy campaign ad, and people buy right in. And it's amazing, too, because if you look back through history, especially when we've all been alive, almost every president starts out with pomp and circumstance. The economy goes up, then the economy goes down, and we're ready for somebody else. And we welcome them in with pomp and circumstance, believing them to be the Savior. And then four to eight years later, we don't like them very much anymore. Their approval ratings are low. We're excited about somebody else because they're not that guy. We put our faith in them. The economy goes up. The economy goes down. We get mad. We want to put our faith in somebody else. Now, you'd think we'd realize at some point that that's just dumb. Go back and name every president in your lifetime. They've done some good things. They've done some terrible things. And none of them have saved us. It doesn't matter who you put up there. White, black, Hispanic, Asian, male, female. It doesn't matter. The greatest gift you can ever receive is not a great president or congressman or senator or a bank full of money or a big house, but it's faith in Christ. And yet we are tempted daily to lay that faith down, to set it aside and place our trust somewhere else. But that doesn't work because Christ responds to unyielding faith. Do you think if this lady had got mad and crossed her arms and says, you're not going to call me a dog, and walks out? What's going to happen to her daughter? But don't we do that to God? God, you didn't answer my prayer quick enough. God, you didn't give me what I wanted. God, you didn't give me that job. God, you didn't give me that money. God, you didn't give me that car or that house. I'm going to put my trust somewhere else. Does it work? Far from it. Christ responds to unyielding faith. So I would ask you this morning, is your faith like this woman's? Do you pursue Christ with the passion that he pursues you? You say, Christ doesn't pursue me. Yes, he did. He left the splendor and glory of heaven. He came and dwelt on this earth among us. He died on a cross in your place. He sends his spirit to convict your heart and call you unto himself. He gave us this precious word so that we could know him. Do you pursue Christ with that same passion? Do you have faith that's easily shaken or is it unyielding? When times of difficulty come, do you stand boldly in your faith and receive whatever Christ sends your way or do you run scared, frightened, 
placing your faith and trust in this world. See, Jesus' words here may seem harsh. He called her a dog. But he was undeterred from his mission. The message of God had not yet come to the Gentiles. It had to come to the Jews first, and then the Gentiles. It had to come to those who were expecting the Messiah. The Father sent Christ. But while he's out, out among the dogs, out among us, out among the sinners who are far from him, he's still drawing people in. See, there's people this morning who, they hate church. They hate the church. They may hate this church. They're far from God. They hate everything to do with God. God's done nothing for them, they think. God's given them nothing. He's not met their needs. He's not met their desires. They want nothing to do from Him. They are far from Him. They have rejected God completely. They're very unlikely. And yet that may be who God's calling. I wonder this morning if you and I have the faith that is necessary to point them toward Christ. Do we only have the faith that is there when God gives us million dollar jets, million dollar houses, huge bank accounts? When God takes care of everything in our time when we want it, is that the only kind of faith we have? Or do we have the faith that's willing to get under the table and accept whatever crumbs fall off and it be sufficient for us? Because I want to promise you that if you've got to come to the table with a full plate, God giving you everything, you may be sorely disappointed But if we're willing to humble ourselves like this woman did and accept whatever it is that Christ has for us, God honors that faith. And that's the type of faith that he uses. We bow your heads with me as we pray. God, we are beyond grateful that you call us to yourself. God, that while we were much like this woman, far from you, God, you you draw us in. You call us in the power of your name. And God, I would pray that we would have humble faith. That we would have faith that is unyielding. Faith, God, to receive whatever it is you give us. God, I pray that we have that type of faith this morning. That when we leave this place, that we have faith that is completely and utterly dedicated to you. 
God, that we have faith that is willing, God, to go wherever you send us to do, whatever you've called us to do, God, to remain completely focused on your mission. God, strengthen our faith this morning. God, strengthen our hearts. Strengthen our pursuit of you and God, all that you've called us to do. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name this morning. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me. Josh is going to lead us in a song, and as he does, my hope is that your heart's desire would be to have faith that's unyielding and unshakable. That regardless if the blessings seem to be flowing and overflowing and your cup is running over and all of those uh, descriptions of, of God's goodness toward us, or if it seems like you're just getting just enough to get by, just the crumbs off the table, wouldn't it be great to be found in Christ? dedicated to his mission and living off of just a little bit being enough. Let me promise you that we are not ready to enjoy the full blessings of God until our faith is strong in just a little bit. That's my desire for your heart and I hope that's your desire as well. That God would strengthen our faith. Cry out to him. Plead with him for that as we sing this morning. Tears.
pray that uh, God would instill in our heart a faith that's not wavering, that can take what, what we're saying, that can live off what we're given, that can know that He's enough, and no matter what we go through. And that's the prayer for my heart, and it's the prayer for yours as well. I want to pray for us as we get ready to go. Uh, pray for some families in our church who have been going through some difficulties. Uh, I heard this morning that uh, Chrissy Gray's grandmother passed away and some other things like that. Just be in prayer for those things. And I know those folks would appreciate those prayers. Um, hope you'll stay around. Life application groups. Sunday school will be starting in just a minute. Let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you, God, that you've given us life and grace and mercy. We praise you that you have God, given us, even in the crumbs from your table, more than we have ever deserved. And God, more than we can ever repay. God, you've given us, even in those crumbs, all that we need. God, strengthen our hearts. Help us be people, God, of faith. Faith that does not yield. Faith that does not give up. Faith that does not get distracted, God, but give us, God, faith that can only come from you. God, we thank you. Thank you for your son and the grace and mercy that we have in his name. And we pray this prayer in that name, the holy and precious name of Christ. Amen.